Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science on your radio for another half an hour. Uh, my name is Chris, and this week I am talking about I'm talking about time. This is this this year is a leap year of sorts, not your normal leap year. There's going to be a leap second, an extra second inserted to um to balance the the time of day with our atomic clocks. That'll happen at the end of June. So I'm going to explain what that is, why that is and what you should watch out for when it happens. Uh, so that's look at for that coming up. In the meantime, though, we do have another new guest, uh, superstar guest person joining us, another Lost in Science team member joining, a science loser, I was going to say, but that's probably a bit rude. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you. What a welcome. Yes. And Claire, can you explain to the good people uh, who you are and what you're going to be talking about today? Uh, my name's Claire, and um, today I'm actually going to take the show on um, a different path. I'm going to be talking about virgin births hmm. in nature. Huh, gotcha. Not the virgin births that we are so commonly um, so commonly hear of um, in yeah, so religion, yep. Yep. but the virgin births um, of of nature. Okay, great. So when you say a different path, it's more a different path than a genesis. Oh, exactly. Yes. Path and a genesis. Oh, great. Uh, look forward to that uh, later in the show. But meanwhile, yeah, on with the program. Okay, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris. And look, I don't want to alarm you, but um, time time is in flux. Time is changing. Oh, really? Right now? Well, time is marching forward. I mean, it always kind of goes on like that. Yeah, but that's that's like regular time. We're all used to that. Yes. There is there is going to be a change to, to well, the calendar, the clock, I guess, uh, this year, on the 30th of June this year, there will be a what we call a leap second, which is an extra second that's inserted into into the calendar due to the Earth's day getting longer and you know needing to make keep things synchronised. Look, it used to because it used to be, of course, that the the day was completely defined by the Earth rotating on its axis. But um, this was before we had accurate atomic clocks and defined the second in terms of the vibrations of cesium atoms. So now the second is far more accurate and we say that then then the rotation of the Earth and we say that the day is 86,400 seconds long. When it's not, then we had to adjust things slightly. So we've been adjusting it a little bit um, sort of like a little bit shorter than it should be for every sort of second and that, and so we have to add another second in? Okay, so okay, so the um the second is like I said is defined according to the vibrations of a cesium atom. That's the basis yeah. of the atomic clock. Um and 
the that calculation with 24 hours it should be 86,400 seconds in a day but the the actual Earth's rotation is slightly longer than that 86,400 mm. seconds. So, yeah, so we had to then, we fall behind, I guess, our clocks fall behind. We have to add in an extra second mm. now at the end. And this is decided by um, a group called the Earth Orientation Centre based in Paris. Uh, they monitor this thing. They actually monitor. They have graphs on their website about the rotation of the Earth. And they decide when it's gone so far that we need to insert another second. And this is the 26th time that there has been a leap second inserted since they began this whole system in 1972. Look, it does sound alarming, I've got to admit, that the idea that the Earth's rotation is changing. Um, but apparently it's quite, it's quite common. Um, the Earth's rotation fluctuates a lot. Um, the biggest effect that you would see on a daily basis is just the wind. Really? Yeah. It, can, it can affect the Earth's rotation by how much? Well, a bit. It's sort of like it's wiggling up and down. So the, um, like if the wind is all blowing kind of from west to east, that kind of takes away some of the, the angular momentum of the earth. And so the, the solid part, the ground, slows down a little bit. And then the wind is going the other direction or it slows down, then the, the ground speeds up again. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the biggest effect that you'll see um, on like a daily basis. It's like the earth having like a tailwind or a headwind. Yeah, something like that, yeah. Uh, but there are other effects as well. Like uh, there's a, apparently what's called a decade-long fluctuation or roughly about a decade that's due to the earth's core um, rotating at different speeds. And, of course, the Earth's core is embedded in molten rock, so it kind of wobbles around in the middle of the Earth like that. Um, there is also things like uh, continental drift has an effect. Uh, earthquakes can shake things up a bit and, and make the Earth go faster or slower. Um, changes in the polar ice caps uh, because you've got more mass at the poles. And even apparently after the last ice age is when the, there was glaciers all over the, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere and the, over the continents, and that has receded, then the continents are still springing back, like they're sort of rising up after having the weight of the ice on them. And this is causing there to be more mass sort of towards the poles. And it's like an ice skater pulling their arms in, the earth speeds up slightly. So that is that is some of the effects. However, the effect that I'm talking about here today is, in fact, of the Earth slowing down. And this is kind of the big, long trend that you saw. And this is due to the moon. Yeah. So you know how tides work? The the moon pulls kind of the water towards it and like, creates yeah. this tidal bulge. Yeah. Right? So it's you have, crazy. It is, it is. Well, it's crazy. It's been going on for a long time, though. It, yeah. I'm kind of used to it. <laughs> so you have a high tide on the side that's of the Earth that's facing towards the moon and also a high tide on the exact opposite side and then halfway around you get a low tide. So you've got this kind of bulge. So the Earth is there in the middle and you get this kind of elongated bulge of the water. Okay, trouble right. is it's not exactly pointing towards the moon because the Earth is rotating on its axis and pulls the bulge around with it mm. due to friction. Mm-hmm. Um, and But the moon is still pulling on that water. So there's kind of tug between the earth rotating and the moon pulling on it. And that causes the, with the friction causes the earth to lose a bit of its rotation and slow down a bit and gradually slow down. Uh, At the same time, what's happening there is that the, the earth is also pulling the water around is also pulling on the moon, which actually speeds the moon up a bit. And then the moon gradually goes into a higher orbit, a higher energy orbit. And so the moon is gradually drifting away from the earth as well. Um, but this phenomenon is called tidal locking. Uh, this happens, of course, would happen a lot quicker if the Earth was smaller. And in fact, this is what happened to the moon back in its early days. There is a reason why the moon always face, has the same face pointing towards us. It's because it had this effect on it, this tidal effect on it in its early days. And so it was made to synchronize its rotation with its orbit around the Earth. 
And yeah, eventually, if there was enough time, it would slow down enough so that essentially the, a day would be a month long. Now, at the rate we're going, we're losing about um, 2.3 milliseconds per century. The day is getting 2.3 milliseconds longer per century. So it's actually a fairly slow process. Um, I've done some calculations. It would, figuring it would take about a trillion years for us to slow down the day to be a month long. Uh, and considering that the Earth is going to be eaten by the sun in about four and a half billion years, I don't think we need to worry about that. We do have very accurate atomic clocks. We also have computers uh, that need accurate time. And so this losing a second here and there is actually a big deal. And there is a proposal at the moment from the International Telecommunications Union to abolish leap seconds. Uh, they're going to be debating it in November this year about whether they should get rid of this system of leap seconds. And um, do they... Throw that open to public debate, or do they do they just have a forum? Who can get involved in this process? I, can I can I submit an application I don't to know. save the leap second? I don't know the answer to that. Um, there are people concerned because it would mean, for instance, that then if they did that, the the our clocks would come out of sync with the day. Sundials wouldn't work is one of the things people have pointed out. Oh, well, that's evidence enough for me that, that we evidence. should keep the leap second. But the issue is because leap seconds do kind of, they, they do worry the computers. Um, the last time there was a leap second inserted was in 2012. And there's a number of computer systems that didn't cope very well with it, um, including um, the booking system of various airlines. Qantas apparently had delays of up to two hours. That's more than a single second. Uh, and they had to check in everyone manually because their computer systems just couldn't handle the extra second. It just ruined their, their all their timing. Uh, so, yeah, it is a serious problem for computers. Many of them have introduced workarounds uh, and they have different approaches to it. So Google, for instance, they're famous for having a leap smear. So oh, what they do is they... Sounds awful. Instead of adding an extra second at the end of the 30th of June, they just basically spread this extra second uh, out okay. throughout, say, you know, a longer period of time mm-hmm. so that it's kind of imperceptible to most people and they just go back to normal speed then after in the... Why don't afterwards. we just go back to 1999 and see what everyone did with the Y2K bug? Well, what everyone <laughs> did was spend a lot of money trying to fix it. I think that's what people don't want to actually have to have. Yeah. So, look, the other thing about how the computers handle it, I guess, and probably what I'm interested in personally is that how do you actually see it? Can you actually switch on your computer at, you know, midnight on the 30th of June and see the clock go to 60 seconds? Okay, instead of going to 59 to zero, will it go to 60? <sighs> the answer, I haven't been able to get a solid answer to this. I think the way that most computer systems deal with it, they try to avoid doing that. Um, I can't figure out. Microsoft, I think, do a situation where they sync the computer after the event. So it'll just continue as normal. And next time they sync the time, then they will adjust it. Mm. So um, look, I can tell you that uh, there are clocks out there that uh, from based on the last leap second that did show the 60 seconds. It looks like possibly the official US time, which is um, the website time.gov, if you type that into your computer. Um, that, I think, last time had the 60 seconds on there. So that might be a good one to watch on the on the night of, oh. of midnight on June the 30th. But, uh, yeah, certainly uh, an exciting time because when, when are you going to see this? This is 60 seconds. What are you, you going to do with your extra second? Oh, look, I might have a, I might have a sleep in. <laughs> uh, that's what I do normally, in, you know, with this kind of um, daylight savings time. But... Oh, it's just so much, isn't it? So much potential. So much potential. Whatever happens in that extra Whole second, second doesn't of potential. Count. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, look out for that end of June. Um, and watch the clocks not tick over as you expect. I can't wait.
across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Chris, um, I brought you a story today about a virgin birth, mm-hmm. um, and it's the virgin birth of um, not little baby Jesus, but a virgin birth of something much more exciting. So not Christmas in June? Um, no, it's not Christmas in June. It is the birth of a sawfish that only has a mother. It has no father. Um, but before I go into that anymore... Um, I'll explain a little bit more about what I mean by a virgin birth in the non-religious sense, in the scientific okay. sense. Um, so in Greek, uh, a virgin virgin birth actually translates to parthenogenesis. And parthenogenesis is a scientific term um, that probably a lot of people have heard about before. I know you have heard about it before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and really it's just a type of asexual reproduction. So an embryo can grow and develop from an egg without there ever being any fertilization from sperm. In fact, there's no sperm ever needed to grow an organism through parthenogenesis. Uh, this is, is this happening in creatures that would otherwise be expected to have sexual reproduction? That's correct. Yeah, it can occur naturally in plants. Um, it's pretty widespread in some invertebrates. Uh, nematodes. Yep. Everyone loves a nematode. Well, they can reproduce sexually and asexually. Um, fleas, scorpions, bees, stick insects, and wasps. Right. Um, that's just the sort of invertebrate uh, group of animals that can reproduce via parthenogenesis. For example... I don't know if you've ever seen a spiny stick insect. They, uh, oh. They're spiny? They're spiny. Yes. They're spiny. They look like dried up spiny gum leaves. And you see them on trees. I, sort I have of, seen them, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sort of sort of shake in the wind. and mm-hmm. they, Yeah, yeah. They're on gum trees. They're pretty amazing creatures. Um, they use parthenogenesis or this asexual reproduction interspersed with sexual reproduction to make their babies. Um, so when there are lots of male spiny leaf insects around, they reproduce sexually. Mm-hmm. But when there aren't so many male spiny leaf insects around, the ladies produce their own embryos from just the DNA in their eggs. Um, so this is called faculative parthenogenesis because the animal can switch between the two types of reproduction. So right. both the sexual and the asexual reproduction. So just a matter of convenience. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Based on what's happening in the environment at the time. Mm-hmm. And opportunity. 
Right. Yep. <laughs> so that's invertebrates. And um, we know some unusual stuff happens in the invertebrate kingdom in terms of reproduction. There's some, there's some strange stuff going on there. I, I don't want to know about <laughs> it, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, well, this parthenogenesis also happens in vertebrates. Well, I mean, because that is, it is, you know, when you're thinking about something like a, a, a spiny stick insect, it's basically barely more than a stick, then it is fairly easy to accept. But uh, so you're saying that vertebrates, animals with a backbone. Animals with a backbone can and have been um, documented as as reproducing this way as well. So things like um, lizards, fish, amphibians, and even strangely enough, turkeys on occasion what? have been found to reproduce via parthenogenesis. Yes, it's really strange. It's, yeah, yeah. So um, one example that I really want to talk about is this amazing uh, little gecko. It's called the morning gecko. Mm-hmm. Um, it's adopted the life strategy of being parthenogenic full-time. All right. Yeah, so that's what's called an obligate um, parthenogenetic, parthenogenic animal. Okay, an so, obligate o- parthenogenic so it's obligated to do that. To do that, yeah. Yep. It doesn't have the choice whether it wants to reproduce sexually or asexually. Um, so if you start putting the dots together, you can sort of see that this species has um, – completely done away with one sex of their species, which right. is the males. Yeah, it's solely it's made up of males. females. It's always the males I get rid of first, yeah. <laughs> well, that's because you've got an X and a Y chromosome, right. unfortunately. And can't lay eggs. And can't lay eggs, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, but the females in this species reproduce in this amazing way they've done away with the males um but they when they go to reproduce they engage in something called pseudo copulation and this is pretty much when two female geckos get together um they hump one another to the point where they both produce eggs which are self-fertilized they both of them do it yeah right they they both sort of hump each other and then that um that creates some sort of hormonal cascading effect that releases an egg, which then self-fertilizes. And through this sort of simulated sex, they can produce healthy offspring, which... Oh, I don't want to get into the detail of this too too much, I guess, you know, the the gritty, nitty-gritty of it. But um, I'm curious. Um, So when you say they're fertilized, uh, is it the the egg is produced with half the chromosomes and then is fertilised or is it produced with a full complement of chromosomes? It's produced with um, half of the chromosomes that come from the egg and then yep. those chromosomes are uh, then doubled. Okay. Yeah. So they're not genetically identical to their mothers. Oh. Yeah. It's just that the egg, which has half the complement of the mother's chromosomes, are then doubled and then they produce an offspring. So they're almost clones, but they're only clones of half of the mother's genetic material. Okay. The next generation then would be exactly the same as that subsequent generation. But then the next – not necessarily. Okay. Yeah. Right. Or necessarily. I don't know. We'll have to look at the mass of that. Anyway, carry on. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to look at the mass of that after. Yeah. That's a very interesting point though. Hmm. 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 So I think lizards aren't telling us. (laughs) <laughs> but, but I think um, I think 
what you realise is that there is a downside to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, by switching permanently to reproducing asexually, the geckos are pretty much almost cloning themselves, which is sort of like the worst kind of incest that you can partake in. And um, it also means that they don't have the power and the prote- protection of genetic diversity, um, which can protect a species from disease, changes mm-hmm. in the environment, uh, less genetic diversity pretty much leaves them quite vulnerable. Yep. Um, but having said that, these morning geckos are doing really well. They're doing all right. They yep. they inhabit most coastal areas around the Indian Pacific Ocean. They're found in Malaysia, India, China, Indonesia, um, and even uh, right here on our shores. Right. Mm. Well, I guess if you have um, sort of with a number of uh, a fairly big diverse population and then they're each uh, reproducing the same way, then you're still going to end up with a fair bit of diversity that of different individuals. They're just going to be different strands in the population, if that makes sense. Well, I don't know. I mean, if they if they if they go um, in different places or different geographical ranges, then maybe. But if but if they keep having some sort of constant, um, um, oh, I don't know. Oh, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Okay, well, we won't we won't write them off yet. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so these geckos are an example of the obligate parthenogenesis, where they have to reproduce asexually. Mm-hmm. Um, but the spiny leaf insect that, um, if you remember, she could switch from one type of reproduction to the other. Yep. Um, the facultative parthenogenesis, and for vertebrates, yep. Um, occasionally, they can partake in this facultative parthenogenesis. Um, it happens in captivity most of the time with, um, uh, with can happen with snakes and lizards mm-hmm. and has also been documented in zoos with animals like the Komodo dragon. Um, but as you can imagine, animals in captivity are often alone in their cages. So it's thought that um, this lack of company or um, any sort of mate yep. Yep. drives or forces the reproductive biology of an anu- of an animal down the asexual route, mm-hmm. um, and the animal has no other choice. Yeah, well, you know, we won't judge. No, um, but it's recently been discovered uh, for the first time that mm-hmm. in a wild population um, where animals are, I guess, interacting with one another on a regular basis, um, I using this mode of reproduction, this facultative pathogenesis. And what animal is this? This is the small-tooth sawfish. Now, um, this small-tooth sawfish is um, pretty amazing to look at. It's part of the stingray family. Um, They're amazing creatures. If you have a look at one of them, they look like they have a chainsaw for a nose. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You you can sometimes see these up in like beach shacks and sort of thing, the big kind of chainsaw thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, they're big long nose with teeth on the outside. Yeah. 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 And just amazing looking creatures. Um, But this particular species of animal um, has a small but significant percentage um, of these small-toothed sawfish that are reproducing asexually in the wild. And this study that came out two weeks ago found that at least 3% of the population were born from just a mother. Hmm. Um, and what's 
even more interesting, I think, about this is that this species is on the brink of extinction. Okay. So the population, it's estimated the worldwide population is about 1% of what it was in 1900, um, which begs the question, did these small tooth rays um, develop this facultative parthenogenesis as a way of reproducing because their population is being pushed to the brink of extinction. And this is the only way that they can continue um, their population. Like the lonely critters in the zoo? Like the lonely critters in the zoo. Yep. This is their only option or is it, is it, um, or is it something else that we haven't thought of? Hmm. Yeah. Um, and which begs the question as well, are we going to see an explosion of these virgin birds in the world as more and more animals get pushed to the brink of extinction? So I sort of, I sort of hope we do see really? that. Well, in the fact that I hope that, animals can pull out all stops and try to save themselves because I'm a little bit down on the human population and I don't know if we're going to be able to save them. Okay, that, them. that's a fair that's a fair call, yeah. yeah. And often the, the asexual reproduction seems to be quicker. Um, exactly. Than, you don't have to wait around for a mate. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. So it's a good way to come back from a low numbers. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. Well, we'll hold out our hope for the, the small tooth sawfish and, um, yeah, hope that it sticks in there. Uh, thanks very much, Claire. Oh, n- no worries. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on our blog, which is lostinscience.wordpress.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to look for us there. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If that's not enough information, you can tune in again next week when Chris and Stuart get lost in science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.